Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Faith on Fire podcast. Whether it's your first time listening or you've been here from the beginning, I truly appreciate everyone who clicks play. Today's episode, I'm so excited about. I spoke with today's guest about a wide range of financial policy topics. We covered everything from cryptocurrency, interest rates, bank regulations, startup investing, black-owned banks, just a wealth of information here that is so, so important to what's going on today. And if you would believe it, we recorded this before the Robin Hood GameStop saga. So won't drag out this intro. I really hope you'll enjoy listening and really get some information from it because there's so much great content here. Without further ado, this is episode three of the Faith on Fire podcast, Raising Benjamin and the Dime. You're listening to the Faith on Fire podcast, the pod where faith and financial independence intersect. I'm your host, Simone Brumel, here to share financial coaching and education through a biblical money mindset. Follow me on my path to financial independence, and I'll give you tips on how to navigate yours. Money is a tool, so learn how to use it wisely. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Appreciate everyone who's listening. I have a great episode lined up and really excited to have today's guest. So before we go any further, I'll pause here and let him introduce himself. Hey, everybody. My name is Carl Joseph Black. I'm a young person from Brooklyn, um, and I run RaisingBenjamin.com, which is a website that provides financial literacy and creates products, financial products for underserved communities. Um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, I went to Kutztown University of Pennsylvania, where I majored in finance. Uh, Right after college, I uh, went to Wall Street, and I spent a few years there. I was there for about four years, no, five years. And then um, I went to law school to learn more about financial policy. And right before I started law school, um, I started raising Benjamin because I realized that there was a huge gap and a huge need, um, not only for better financial products for black folks, but also for more um, education in the investing space. So um, thanks, Simone, for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, I've been following you online and just the financial education you've been putting out was the main reason I decided you know, you'd be a great guest for for the podcast and, you know, the mission of Raising Benjamin, as you mentioned, just getting financial products and information to the Black community, um, I just think is a, a great mission and excited to just have a, a conversation around financial policy as well as just investing. Absolutely. Um, I look forward to it. It's, it's going to be lit. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So as you were talking about financial education and financial products, one of the main things that kind of bothers or concerns me is the education around financial products, where you see a lot of people wanting to invest or get into stocks and, you know, start building a portfolio, but maybe not have the right education. Um, and there's so much information out there, especially in the days of this day of the internet and social media, it's easy to get misinformation. So, um, how would you recommend people start to educate themselves when they, you know, just fresh decide they want to start investing their money? 
Well, I always tell folks, um, first place you want to go is investopedia.com, right? Um, that's like, that's the source that no matter how many different websites came out and different perspectives and different, you know, financial bloggers and writers, um, that's the one that has been so consistent and, and so well checked and verified. So um, I always tell folks go to Investopedia first, get your fundamentals and your build, building blocks there, and then um, move over to, you know, kind of like the larger outlets, your Bloomberg's, your Wall Street Journal's, um, your Barron's, um, your Market Watches, just so you can kind of get um, an up-to-date um, uh, uh, perspective on what's going on in markets. Because you go to Investopedia, you get your foundation, and you're like, all right, so what does that look like in practice today, right? So I would tell folks to do those first. And then once you get through those and you have enough um, perspective or you have enough experience in that space, to then pivot to um, focus on um, platforms that you feel speak better to you. Um, so like one example is like The Dime, which is um, a financial newspaper that I basically published exclusively on um, social media, right? And um, I use Twitter um, stories. I use tw- Twitter fleets and I use Instagram stories to put out this information. Um, and um, essentially it's like uh, broken down financial news, right? But I always tell folks to kind of like hit Investopedia first just so you can have a um, an, an even more or, or a larger understanding of what it is that I'm talking about just because the information that I'm providing, although extremely helpful, is still not the entire story, right? So, um, so, so that'll be my recommendation to folks. Yeah, and I definitely have to, you know, second on the dime because again, that's what I started following, and it was a great help to me. And it's in practical language, right? So, um, as you mentioned, Investopedia, Wall Street Journal, those have their place. Um, if you're trying to get information, but it's still nice to hear someone giving you, you know, the breakdown of the financial news with analogies and metaphors to things you can relate to. So whether it's Jay-Z versus or New York slang, right? I really appreciate that the dime can speak to high level and technical financial concepts, but make it relatable. So um, definitely plug that for anyone who isn't already following or subscribing to the dime. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading and for, um, you know, spreading the word on it. Yeah. And I think just education in general, I find that people don't just the, the, the attention span for reading or things that are too long is shorter and shorter. And, you know, with the dime, it's in an Instagram story, it's in a fleet. Um, it's saved to the you know Instagram page so you can digest that a little better. Um, and it's a great start for people who are trying to understand what investing is and getting into the market. And I think the other piece of that is a lot of people don't even know where to start, right? So you have money and you know there's a stock market or Wall Street, but how do I even start investing? And um there's kind of three lanes I like to look at it where you have a, a customized or private fund manager. Option B is using a brokerage account. And then the third option, you're, you know, 
have your trader account or Robinhood, whatever, and you're trying to trade for yourself, picking stocks, et cetera. So could you speak to a little bit of the difference between the three and how people should really um, educate themselves or be prepared if they're doing any of those options? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always tell folks, you know, the first option of like having your funds with an institution is kind of what a lot of folks already do, right? We, I, I think that's one thing that we realize, well, that we don't realize we do. A lot of us invest already, especially if you're working in like corporate America and there's like a 401k involved. Like if you opt into that 401k um, and they take maybe 10 or $15 from your biweekly paycheck, you're already investing, right? You just aren't really focused on that particular account. Right. But that's like the, the more institutional kind of, OK, I'm giving my money to some dude and he's operating it. Right. Or, or giving my money to some woman and she's operating that money for me and getting returns. And hopefully when I'm, you know, 59 and a half, I can take that money out and retire with it. Right. So that's like the first option. And the second option, obviously, is to do that. But um, but actually pick who you want to manage your money. And a lot of folks do that through the course of ETFs, which you can buy through a brokerage, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Vanguard is one of like the, the biggest companies in this space or like BlackRock where they create these themed ETFs with these portfolio managers that actually manage your money. And um, there's advantages and disadvantages, right? So one of the advantages is, you know, when you invest in, in a fund through, through your brokerage, um, you have instant diversification. Right. Because these ETFs or exchange traded funds essentially are themed funds that are created by this portfolio, um, this portfolio manager. And they allow and that portfolio manager has a bunch of companies that they picked based on their experience and is also weighted um, differently based on which company that they prefer. Right. So so that is an option. And then the third option is obviously picking the stocks by yourself. And based on your experience, it could be high risk or low risk. If you're someone who's never invested in stocks before, obviously you're on the higher risk side because you're probably picking names that you heard um, either from friends or saw on Twitter or heard right. on Clubhouse. Um, so, so the risk is high because you're not, you don't necessarily know exactly why you're buying into these companies. But then if you're somebody like me or like you who has, you know, years of experience um, in the financial industry and understands how to read balance sheets and understand how to read analyst reports, then, you know, the risk is a bit lower because um, you actually know exactly why you're investing in these companies. Right. So so there is that spectrum. Um, but I always say that, you know, you should have your money diversified between the three. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, you should be contributing to your 401k mm-hmm. because there are a lot of tax benefits for contributing to your 401k, right? And right. you should be um, investing in diversified funds, whether it's um, exchange traded funds or index funds or mutual funds, you should be investing in those because you should have a portfolio that's diversified and managed by a professional. But you also should have your own brokerage account where you're picking your own stocks and not because you should be hearing about names and putting your money in it, but more so because you should engage in the practice of learning how to analyze a business 
simply because every day we're engaged with businesses, right? And and if you want to actually um, be active in increasing your wealth, you need to understand business. There is a business of everything. There's the business of art. There's the business of childcare. There's the business of cell phones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the business of books. Media. <laughs> um, media, right? Like all of these are businesses. And, you know, uh, uh, we're all consumers of these different types of businesses, but we'd actually be better consumers of these different types of businesses if we understood more how these businesses ran, right? We'd be able to make better financial decisions. Yeah, that that's perfect. And the diversification is, I think, the, the biggest selling point, right? Because um, even me as, as someone who has some understanding of financial markets and, you know, businesses, as you say, looking at a balance sheet and financial statements. Um, at the end of the day, one, I don't have time to be that invested to really understand these companies. And two, it's not something I want to do outside of, of work. So as someone who still has that knowledge, I do appreciate someone who's doing that full time and trusting them to manage through an ETF or index fund, as you, as you mentioned. Um, and I think that a lot of people miss the diversification because it's easy to get wrapped up in the excitement of, you know, day trading or buying options, forex, all these things that people are excited to do for themselves um, and miss opportunities to just invest in um, those funds that, that have a little more security and, and give you that diversification. Very true. Um, I think that it's it's 100% necessary, especially um, if you're somebody who is very serious about um, increasing their wealth, right? It, like you need to make sure that your money is separated in the most amount of buckets possible, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the way we kind of need to think about um, our own money, just like diversifying always, right? Like a lot of folks are like, all right, I'm super focused on this investment thing. So like, this is what I'm going to do because this is the way to wealth or real estate. Real estate is the way to wealth, right? When it's like, no, no, there's actually all these different avenues that exist. It's just, we need to be introduced to every single avenue so that we can pick the one that fits our financial situation the most. Yeah, that's perfect. And as you mentioned, real estate, right? That's a a very... um popular avenue people get into investing, you think, okay, I'll just invest in real estate. Um, but with that, you know, it's also high risk. So you still want to make sure you're diversified in other areas, whether that means, you know, these funds we're talking about or, or some other um, financial um, vehicle that you're considering all the options in investing. Because the, the, the number one thing is that diversification or multiple streams of income. Absolutely. So we're, Getting into or uh, getting a new administration and one of the big things around, you know, administrations or politics is to me how that impacts financial policy. Um, and I don't think all the time we grasp how these things impact the everyday lives, um, our everyday lives, right? The financial policies that, um, the administration puts in place affects us in real life ways and can affect us that way. And and sometimes people overlook that when we start talking about voting, you know, or being active saying it doesn't impact you when 
specifically at the federal level, it, it can because this administration, the administration determines who's in charge of, you know, the Federal Reserve and SEC board, all these things that trickle down to us. So what would you say, what would you say is like practical examples of how financial policy can impact us? Yeah, it's, it's financial policies everywhere. Um, and we don't realize it, right? Like, um, so I spent, um, most of the time that I was on Wall Street, I spent it working in financial policy after doing interest rate research. Um, and essentially, uh, one of the things I found is that like, you know, uh, when you get a bank transfer, every bank has to ensure that the entire transfer is there within seven days, unless there is an issue with your account. Then they have to make sure all of that money is there in 30 days. Like that is a law. That's policy, right? Um, and these are little things that we take for granted every day because we just see them happening, right? Like you see like a cash app or something like yeah. that where you can instantly Zelle. get money, right? Or Zelle, right? Um, so, but, but that like banks actually have to make sure that they get their money, that they get your money to you by a certain date or else they actually get dinged by either the Federal Reserve or the FDIC. Um, they have to pay a fine, right? Um, um, and the, these little things like really change the way the economy runs because the faster you have access to money, the faster you can use it, right? Or, or if you need it for an emergency or anything like that. Um, one of the interesting things that, well, there are a number of interesting things that, um, I see, um, from a policy that I saw from a policy perspective that actually affected, that affects where we are now. And, um, and I'm interested to see how things will change moving forward based on the philosophies of the new administration and the people who they put in place. Um, so I guess we should start from Trump, right? Um, and he made certain choices that, you actually see directly affect the markets that we're in right now. One of them is choosing um, Jay Powell or Jerome Powell as the, the Fed chair for the, the chair of the Federal Reserve. He's more of what people call a consensus builder, right, where he wants to hear about different sides um, in Washington and then try to shape policy that way. But the sides that were in policy when we had a Republican majority in the Senate and um, at the time for a short stint, we had a, um, a Republican majority in um, the House. Those were the perspectives that he was listening to. They and So he ended up shaping policy where he lowered interest rates um, significantly. Um, in the beginning, he hiked them and then he lowered them to, to, to zero. Now, if you're a large financial institution, you can borrow money for free, damn near, right? Um, and what these companies are doing, right, is they're taking that money and they're reinvesting it in the market. And what that did was it pushed up the value of all of these stocks or a lot of large companies were buying back their own their own stock because they were able to borrow that money for free. Like yeah, that's how gave us the stock market that was, you know, when they said the economy is doing great, that's, that's what everyone was looking at. Yes, exactly. Right. And it, and then, and so that financial policy, um, it, it distorts the, um, reality that we're living in, right? Like the mere fact that since, you know, uh, March, since the coronavirus happened, the Federal Reserve lowered rates to zero. The Federal Federal Reserve said banks don't have to actually keep any of your money in the bank account. They could take 
your money, they lowered the reserve requirements to zero, Mm -hmm. which and a reserve requirement basically essentially says, all right, if you put $100 in the bank, you need to make sure that that money's there for um, somebody when they want to withdraw it. And usually that reserve requirement lives between 10% and 15%. So for every $100, the bank needs to keep in the account 10 to $15, right? Mm -hmm. But right now it's at zero. So banks can actually take all of that money and loan it out for interest and lend it to companies um, or lend it to other people who want to borrow money. And that's supposed to stimulate the economy. But what people are doing right now is because they're seeing that there's so much return in the stock market, they're borrowing money at really low rates to then invest it in the stock market to get a higher rate of return. And then they're paying back the loan and keeping the difference. They're keeping the spread, right? And, And that's policy. That's what that was. That was policy. And that policy got so bad that, um, the federal reserve made it a, um, um, condition that if you had to get money, well, it wasn't the federal reserve, it was the treasury. The treasury said, if you want PPP money, or if you want bailout money, you cannot buy back your own stock. That's how bad it was, right? Because they realized that these loans are like really cheap. And like the first thing companies with healthy balance sheets are going to do is borrow more during the pandemic and then just pump up their stock valuation. Companies ended up borrowing money from other sources anyway, right? And still were able to buy back their own stock or ensure that they were able to, you know, pay certain bills and redirect um, different funds so that they could see their way through the pandemic. And then um, toward the end of the year, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury both agreed, okay, cool, you could buy back your stock, but within certain limits. And what that ended up doing was pumping up the stock market again. So within the last six weeks, you'll see this huge surge in trading volume. And a lot of that is because the buybacks are cleared again. And that's financial policy. And that's how it affects, it distorts um, it distorts financial markets and it affects a person who wants to buy stocks for the first time. And that's because they might be paying too much per share for a particular company. And, and that's because that company either bought back their own stock or a, uh, or a financial institution has decided to pour some money into it so that they can get some returns. Right. And, um, it, it affects, it affects every part of our lives because these things yeah. go back, right? It trickles all the way down to, you know, the value of our dollar and the consumer confidence um, that people have. And also just people getting upset that these people on Wall Street are making a ton of money, but we have 9.8 million people who are unemployed right now. Yeah. Right? Um, so there's this huge amount of wealth inequality exists simply because of either fiscal or um, monetary policy, which I always say falls under financial policy. Yeah, that that's a great point. And now as we're trying to transition to a new administration, as you're saying, what are some things that you'd want to see from a new administration to enact in financial policy to actually help the average person or in their day-to-day, right? Because it, as you were saying before, it starts with the banks and Wall Street. They're doing taking loans and investing and, you know, essentially making profits for themselves. But we're not necessarily seeing that impact 
literal Americans, right? People. So what are some policies that you expect, or if you had to predict, um, the new administration could enact or do to start helping people? Well, one area I think um, the administration has a huge opportunity to take advantage of and likely will is um, ensuring that community community development financial institutions, um, or for short, CDFIs, um, have um, adequate capital and um, essentially lowering their um, risk, their risk commitments, right? Um, essentially, CDFIs aren't um, traditional fa- financial institutions. They're not like banks, but they're organizations that exist to provide capital directly to particular um, to certain types of communities. Um, and, and there are um, a, a lot of a lot of black folks who borrow money, they get it from CDFIs, not from mm-hmm. traditional banks. And that's because the credit restrictions aren't as tight in CDFIs as they are in traditional financial institutions. So I but the, one of the issues they've had historically is having access to more capital. Um, and also their risk restrictions. So, um, what you would see happen a lot to CDFIs is, oh, like your risk profile is really high. And, but it's like, it's like a, it's like a kind of like a gotcha because, um, CDFIs risk profiles are high because they lend to riskier borrowers. Right. right? So if you, if you tell them that they have to operate underneath this particular risk profile and by default, the people they're lending to are riskier people, then they're going to max out the risk risk profile every time. So um, I see that there's going to probably be some um, relaxation around those rules for CDFIs. I would like to see that. And Mm -hmm. also to get more federal funding from the treasury to go directly to them so that they could lend um, directly to us in our neighborhoods because large financial institutions are lending to large businesses Mm-hmm. And they're lending to mid-sized businesses. Um, and um, a high majority of those businesses are white-owned businesses um, or they're legacy businesses. And if we're looking to create new businesses or bring folks back into the workforce, we need to create a bunch of new businesses, right? Um, but you need access to capital for that. And CDFIs have historically been a great source. Um, yeah. And I think they'll continue to be that if the new administration can can come through with that. Um, I think uh, when it comes to getting more um, money for social programs, I think things are going to be much easier now because we've really like hit an inflection point when it comes to the pandemic and getting money directly in the hands of people. As we've seen recently, Biden said, yo, we got $1,400 coming your way. Also, I would say there's going to be a lot more, um, there's going to be a lot of more crypto first policy, um, for cryptocurrencies. Um, although it's still a very volatile space, um, and there's a lot of risk in that particular area, but it is like a very novel, um, type of technology that I think could really change, um, finance, the financial markets in general, um, especially from the perspective of payments. Um, and I think, um, based on Biden's pick for the SEC, who has a lot of experience in understanding cryptocurrencies, um, at least from when he was working in, um, his name is Gary Gensler, I believe. Um, and, uh, he worked in 
the um, the uh, CFTC, which is the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Right. Um, and that was the first um, that was the first branch. That's the first administrative agency that regulated Bitcoin futures. Um, um, so so he has a thorough understanding of the effect of cryptocurrencies. So I feel like we might actually have some crypto first um, policy. But right now, you know, we're, we're at an inflection point with crypto where um, it can either it can either, you know, be super regulated and kind of close the door on opportunities for new people, for new entrants, or it could stay the way it is, or it could be loosened up a bit and more recognized by um, other financial institutions. I feel like right now with more financial institutions entering that space, um, it'll probably be the latter, right? Um, Especially if they can lobby the federal government to kind of chill out for a bit. But it's yet to be seen. We'll see how Biden feels. Um, but I know that that's not his top priority at the moment. His yeah. top priority is handling the coronavirus. Yeah, as you were talking about that, it's like there's so many things within the financial markets and, and financial policy that could be touched. But, you know, just from a priority perspective, it's, it's hard to tell if a lot of that will, will get addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's opportunity. Um, and that's mm-hmm. because... We've seen in the last four years, we've kind of had like the wild, wild west of a lot of things. And a lot of things kind of got changed. Like one policy that I found was really, really interesting that was changed within the last year, or at least proposed. Um, I'm not entirely sure if it's fully complete as of yet. Um, It might be going through the rulemaking process, but um, the accredited investor rule um, for um, um, by the SEC was modified. Um, and it was loosened. So for a quick summary, the accredited investor rule basically decides who has the ability to invest in um, smaller companies or invest in riskier companies. Um, essentially, um, the accredited investor rule um, previously, uh, you had to have at minimum $250,000. I think it was like $300,000 um, um, you had to earn that amount um, for multiple years, or you had to have a net worth, and it was this extremely high net worth. I think it was like in a few millions in order to qualify as an accredited investor. Mm-hmm. What that did was it created a certain particular class of people that were able to invest in companies like Facebook early, right? Yeah. Or, or Uber early. You had to be like this high net worth person, or you had to be this high. Um, um, what I would call, um, what some people call Henry's, you know, you, you have, uh, you're a high earner, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you either had to be a high earner, make 250,000 or more per year, or you had to have a super high net worth, right? But, but the issue is that it blocked out regular folks like me and you who weren't, you know, high earners yet, right? Or Mm -hmm. high earners at all. Or and didn't you know get this huge amount of money passed down from family to family, right? Didn't have generational wealth yet. So the SEC actually relaxed that rule and said, okay, great. Like if you have a certain amount of experience in the financial industry, or if you've taken a Series Seven exam and passed, if you have your certification, you can also be um, an accredited investor. And um, they opened this rule up. 
um, in the federal register so that people can kind of comment on what they think the um, other, you know, what, what, what other things would work. So like if you have a CPA or if you have a CFP, should you be an accredited investor? And it's still being worked out now, but I think that's actually a very important change because now that opens up um, the ability for not only more people to um, increase their own personal wealth by investing in these startups much earlier, but it also allows them to be conduits for other people to right. invest in startups as well, right? And I think that's going to really open up the economy for um, Black folks in the financial space, especially if they go and they get their letters, um, because now they could say, all right, great, like I can invest in these companies on your behalf because I'm an accredited investor, Right. So um, so that's another way that financial policy can kind of really shift things for us and work um, in our favor. Yeah, I definitely um, like that ruler where that policy is going, because as you said, right, a lot of people get wealth from startups. So you hear of like Beyonce or Nas getting in early on, you know, um, ring doorbell and all these startups that you and an average person you just don't know. And it's only when you have a certain level of status that you can do that. And, you know, for us, it's usually our entertainers or, you know, athletes. Um, but if we were able to get that access from more everyday people, or as you said, you know, people who have letters, CFPs, CPAs, whatever is decided, I think that will open a lot of opportunities for our communities um, because it's just a lack of knowledge a lot of times for us and a lack of access. Um, mm-hmm. So if that policy was enacted, it could, it could definitely do some real change in our communities where we're able to be in the conversations in these startups um, because one, we're, we're usually not at the table in the startup, right? We're not very highly represented at Silicon Valley. So um, you missed the opportunity there. So at the least, if we can, you know, be an investor, that that would do a lot for investments into our community. Absolutely. And even right now, like you see that there are certain businesses that actually have been created to be the conduits for us to invest in um, particular startups, right? Like there's an, a website called Shares Post that allows you to invest in startups, but like you have to do it through them because you couldn't really do it yourself. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do it through, um, you know, someone that you knew, right? Um, and um, it, it's frustrating on one end. It, it's great on one end because now, you you know, you kind of get to do it functionally, right? Even though there's probably little fees and you miss out on certain things. Mm-hmm. But then on the back end, it's frustrating because, like, that definitely could have been um, a Black person that created shares post, or that could have been a Black person that created a fund, right, and raised it directly from their community to invest in these companies who um, has a, a better effective lens on what their community's needs are and the community's mm-hmm. risk profiles, but also can actually earn a living by being the representative for their community by taking, you know, uh, a, a 2% fund fee or something like that. Like yeah. those are jobs that like we could have, but now like startups are like, well, since black folks can't have it because a lot of them aren't accredited investors, like let's just get our accredited investor friends and let's just create funds and then like we'll be the people to do it. So it's like, so like, yeah, on a consumer end, you get the access and you get like your fix. You get to invest 
in these private companies, but like the money is leaving the black community and going exactly. somewhere else, which is a very frustrating thing. Which is why I hope that you know we can solidify something with that accredited investor rule that allows more black people to kind of get into the space and become financiers. Um, I, I think crypto is also going to create more black financiers, but if they start regulating, it might actually start closing the door. So, um, so, so it's yet to be seen, but um, we definitely need more black financiers. Like, um, um, there's not enough of us. Um, when I was on Wall Street, I was like one of the few black folks there. Um, they, 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 when you talk about, oh, nah, like, what about the, you know, effect on such and such, right? They're like, yeah, but we have like a fiduciary duty to our shareholders. And I'm like, okay, so who are your shareholders? And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're white guys, right? <laughs> right. It's not, so, it's not us. <laughs> it's not us. Cause like, technically speaking, if we had more black shareholders, Right. Then we would have a fiduciary duty to those black folks whose, you know, whose thoughts on a particular situation would be a lot different than white shareholders. Yeah. So I think that's a great segue to kind of my last point. Um, And we can wrap up just talking about raising Benjamin and like what you're doing there. And if people are interested, you know, what the requirements are to being a part of raising Benjamin. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Raising Benjamin has, um, numerous products. The Dime is, um, one of the products there. Um, and that's, you know, you can just go on my page at C. Joe Black or at It's the Dime on Instagram. Um, and, and on Twitter, you can just follow at C. Joe Black. Um, so that's one of the Raising Benjamin products that's actually available to anyone. There is no, um, sign up or anything like that. You just follow me. You'll see it. Um, another product that we do have, um, it's called the Blacklist Social Club. And essentially, it's a social club for investors. And um, what we've done is we've created a digital first social club where people can actually meet and congregate online on a private platform um, that actually has a bunch of technology that helps people do investment research at a significantly faster rate than they would if they just did a bunch of Google searches. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially one of the things I'm trying, like what I'm building on the blacklist and what I've already built is, um, the, every, the Bloomberg terminal for every man. And for those who are unfamiliar with the Bloomberg terminal, the Bloomberg terminal is essentially a piece of software or a computer. Sometimes it's a piece of hardware, depending on who the client is, but it, it's used by all financial institutions so that they can get financial data so that they can make investment decisions. Like that is the edge that financial firms have over everybody else. Um, this is like, this is why Mike Bloomberg is a billionaire. He's a billionaire because of this, because he provides financial information to people at a much faster rate than CNBC, Yahoo, and all these other folks do because he has his own software and hardware. And that's what, um, that's like the technology that underpins the Blacklist Social Club, where you get to speak to people who have financial experience and either worked or currently work in the financial industry or have been trading for a very long time. You get to talk with them and also you get access to this financial data that either it's very difficult to find on the internet or you just have to do too many Google searches 
and it's mm-hmm. way too confusing. Um, so, so essentially what I'm trying to do is solve the problem that we um, spoke about earlier when you have your own brokerage account, which is now you can make a more informed decision when you're buying your own stocks out of your Robinhood instead of relying on some tweets or relying yeah. on what some person in Clubhouse said. You can use hard data to make that decision. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely the link is the actual information in our communities outside of just word of mouth, getting more people access to, you know, what the actual financial institutions are saying. So I think that's awesome. And if, um, if people are interested in joining the blacklist, um, how can they, if, if, you know, it's open to new members? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you can go to raisingbenjamin.com slash the blacklist. Um, literally written out um, the way I said it. Um, or you can just go to RaisingBenjamin.com and if you look on uh, the headers, you'll see um, a, a portion where it says the blacklist. You can just click that and the application is right there. Um, we're always open to new members. Um, so definitely check it out um, and apply. Awesome. Let's say you're a person who wants to create their own portfolio um, and you want to get 10 names, like you can do research on 10 names on there, buy it, and then just spend the rest of your time, you know, getting to know the other folks who either work in the industry or work in other industries, folks who are in, you know, real estate and um, have been in that space for a long time. Um, you can network with people who work at Apple or who work at, you know, other large companies that you may want to, you know, work there as well. Um, there are a lot of other intangibles that come with um, the social club itself. That's why it's called a social club. Um, but most importantly, it's you get access to doing this great high quality research that helps you make these decisions and then you get to talk to people about it. So you're never alone, right? Which I found is something that um, a lot of folks are when when they're getting started um, um, in their investing journey, right? Like they're usually by themselves. They're like, I heard this, I heard that, my friend told me this, my friend told me that. But when it comes to time, they're like hitting the buy button on your um, broker, whether it's Robinhood, Webull, or TD Ameritrade, Thinkorswim, um, you're by yourself. No one's there saying, yeah, I checked that. I don't think that's good. Or there's an issue with their last earnings report or, you know, their CEO is looking to step down or there's been insider selling. And like, that's the data that um, you're able to get from the blacklist and you're able to talk to people about that as well. That's great. Um, and I think this has been a great conversation. We went from policy to, you know, practical and, and just, um, overall things that affect our community. So it has been a pleasure speaking with you, Carl. Um, and you've mentioned it before, but I guess just for anyone who's looking to follow you on socials, you can give them your socials and, and how to find you. Absolutely. So my personal page is at C Joe black at C J O E B L A C K. Um, and that's everywhere. Um, and, um, the dime page is at it's the dime at I T S the dime. Um, reach out to me, DM me, like I'm always responding to folks. Awesome. Yeah. I encourage everyone, if you're looking for investment 
advice or well not advice information definitely follow um carl on all platforms and again it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thank you everyone for tuning in thanks so much for having me awesome all right i really hope you enjoyed this episode and you took away some piece of information that will help your financial journey if you aren't already please follow me on social media facebook and instagram i'm at faith on fire llc and on Twitter, SB Faith on Fire. Please, if you haven't signed up for the book club, this month's book ties in so much to what we were talking about. We're reading The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America by Sean D. Rochester. So you can sign up. The link's on my Instagram bio as well as on my website, faithonfirellc.com. As always, I truly appreciate everyone who's listening. God bless and take care.